Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 19th of October, as we record. It's exactly 28 years and four months to the day since the launch of the alternative investment market. Uh, admittedly, that's not much of an anniversary, but I mention it because this is a special aim Focus episode of the podcast to mark the publication of our annual AIM 100 rundown this week. It's been another tough year for the junior market. Uh, hopes of a recovery from last year's even tougher times haven't really materialized or haven't materialized at all as an index level, given uh, the pressure being exerted by high interest rates. However, as usual, there are still plenty of companies that are still set fair, operationally at least, and we've picked a few of them to discuss today. We will start with investment manager Tatten, then move on to specialist franchiser franchise brands, and also take a look at insolvency specialist FRP advisory. And we'll touch very briefly on antibody producer Bioventix as well. Joining me to discuss all of this over the line are Julian Hoffman. Hello there, Dan. Hi, Julian. Uh, Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mark. Chris Akers. Hi, Dan. Hi, Chris. And in the studio, Gemma Slinger. Hi, Dan. Hi, Gemma. Tatton is a good place to begin, I think, because we'd flagged them as one to discuss yesterday. And then, Julian, they put out a trading update this morning that really seems to confirm a lot of our thinking about the business. Yes, it was. Uh, it um, dispelled a lot of the doom and gloom around the asset managers at this time of year. Um, obviously, the context of this is that uh, the, uh, the asset under management uh, season uh, update is in progress. And uh, up until now, almost everybody was reporting uh, net outflows of funds which uh, in many ways wasn't unexpected for the sector as a whole but uh, Tatton really stood out in this particular um, update by reporting uh, really quite healthy inflows for the last quarter uh, they took in about 152 million pounds a month in net funds uh, to bring a total of 0 0.9 uh, billion or nearly 1 billion for the quarter and uh, that was an impressive result. I think there's no there's no doubt that uh, if anyone is taking in uh, net funds at the moment, then that is a, a real rarity among the asset managers of whatever size. So there was it was a, a, an impressive uh, performance from Tatton. And uh, yeah, as as you kind of alluded to, the the reason they keep doing so well is is the way their business model works. It's uh, it offers a a model portfolio service to lots of independent financial advisors with whom they build long-term relationships and uh, effectively they give the advisor uh, a profit boost in a sense because the uh, the hassle of maintaining uh, a portfolio is taken out of the business and Tatton does that on their behalf in a very standardized way so it's 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 kind of a cost saving for the IFA and uh, which is why Tatton's service is quite so popular I think on that uh, on that basis yeah undoubtedly that, that business, I mean, maybe to the uninitiated, might seem uh, bizarre in some ways, I suppose, because, you know, you go to an IFA and you think, well, they'll invest my money, they'll invest it in some funds. But, but nowadays, the big growth area has been that second level of intermediation where the uh, IFAs, the advisors are focused on, you know, financial planning, cash flow modeling. And so the actual investment is done by a middleman who then invests it in the funds themselves. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, they take away effectively most IFAs nowadays. If uh, if they don't have any scale, prefer not to run the hassle of uh, you know portfolio because you need lots of compliance uh, 
architecture and everything inside the business and all of that is done under Tatton's purview so that uh, it has a real attraction and it, it's sort of a way it keeps the smaller IFAs in business I think that's one uh, one remark as well to point out yeah and it is interesting as well how they really carved out this niche for themselves because a lot of people have been moving into this area in recent years a lot of wealth managers you know making a lot of money in this area charging a lot for these uh, model portfolio services but Tatton it was one of the first it's actually still relatively cheap by the standards of some peers and, and it's you know the biggest player in the sector there are you know big asset managers looking at this kind of space as well though which may be potentially a threat but at the same time they've been looking for a couple of years and, and Tatton is still the one seeing you know the healthy inflows and it hasn't been disrupted too much so far. The only other one that's had any scale is uh, Aberdeen's model portfolio service business and that started in 2019 um we don't tend to rate Aberdeen I don't think anyone tends to rate Aberdeen very much but um it is a, a potential threat given that they have the resources to to build that up over time because it is a very large market there's I don't know 30 billion of funds that could be um uh, that could be put into such a portfolio or would at least be uh, suitable for a, a portfolio managed portfolio service. So there is plenty of room for growth. Yeah, Julian, the thing is, uh, I think uh, anecdotal evidence suggests as well, when you go along to an IFA nowadays, typically the one thing that they try and work out is your uh, the level of risk exposure that you'd be willing to take on. And I suppose the, the nuts and bolts beyond that uh, it, it's much easier just to offload it to a, a third-party source. Um, in, in a sense, uh, to to Dan's point before as well, it, it, it has some attributes which are not dissimilar to a, a management consultancy. Just because you're not making these uh, decisions directly, it doesn't mean that... Uh, I mean, I, I guess in a sense, it, it's knowing what you want to achieve, really. That's the end point and the start point. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, the, the other point to note is well, that Tatton isn't a one-service business, so they do have a mortgage arm mm. uh, as well. And uh, surprisingly, that's also doing reasonably well. So, I mean, completions are slightly down, but um, it, it comes down to, I think, the fact that they have this relationship with lots of independent financial advisors, and people will stick, you know, consumers will stick with their financial advisor. It tends to be uh, a bit like a, a relationship between the sort of the priests in this congregation you have that uh, that sort of that close bond um, that companies who have the right service can sort of take advantage of or at least um, benefit from yeah verily indeed well that that first mover advantage i think is a big key as well you know to establish those relationships first up because ironically enough i think given the theme of this show tatton also said this morning that its aim portfolio it was going to scrap because it hadn't achieved scale you know there are a lot of wealth managers with aim portfolios it was arguably too late to that market but it does show you know where its strengths are at the same time Let, let's talk a bit about the mortgage side julian you alluded to it there because that is i think about 10 percent of business of, of revenues uh and as you say, even that is doing fairly well. You know, completion volumes are only down a little bit, which in the current environment is is very. It's not bad at all. Yeah, I mean, it's nearly nearly seven billion. So I mean, yeah. it's only down about zero point four billion compared with this time last year or the first half last year. I, I don't know. It, there, there's an element of they're losing margin in that business. I mean, I think that's that's clear because uh, obviously, when interest rates go up for certain people, then that cuts the margin for other people. But uh, 
uh, it, it, by, by and large, um, their ability to track um, mortgage firms into their service is probably why they're keeping the the uh, the applications and the uh, and the completions flowing. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, it's not just it's not just the wider it's not just the market itself it's their ability to service the market which seems yeah. to be the key point for a lot of their customers yeah this is, this is a business that also works with the financial advisors and and yeah a lot of that business this year has been i think transfer rather than new mortgage business hence the margin coming down but but equally you know client volumes are still increasing which which shows you know it has a status in the market i suppose the big question is about valuation tatton has done very well over recent years it's looking very expensive i mean it's 21 times uh, earnings at the moment um which is double the sector average but i mean it's difficult to argue whether their the peers in the sector are exactly the same as uh, you know offer exactly the same thing as tatton so they stand out really on their own in terms of uh, both the service and the way that the market values them but i mean judging on the by the results that they're generating, then that uh, that uh, that rating is well supported. Um, whether you at this point you want to go in at twenty one times is is a moot point. But uh, it, it is worth noting that the share price in uh, in nominal terms is well down on the heights they achieved in twenty twenty one. So I mean, you can you could then say, well, if the operational side of the business is quite so solid, then you know a market recovery in two years time three years time um is going to bring that uh, that rating back up again i think another point uh worth considering you alluded to early on is the fact that we we'll likely see some new entrants into this market in the coming years too so um in, investors need to take that uh, into consideration i think the the final point on tatton is quite interesting and really underlines perhaps the wealth management sector in general is that Despite them having a very cost-effective uh, model portfolio service versus peers, they still have a huge, huge margin they deliver, which which tells you perhaps what other people are charging and and you know what their kind of margins are. But you know, currently the business is working for them, and it seems to be working for customers too. The only question is that valuation, as you say. Let's turn though to another uh, aim company now, uh, franchise brands. Chris, you uh, cover this for us in our write-up this week in print uh now despite the name the name franchise brands to me if i didn't know anything about the company would suggest you know almost a, a unilever kind of company perhaps but but in actual fact those brands are, are rather different it's fair to say yeah so yeah so franchise brands for those who don't know is quite an interesting company it's a, it's a franchiser um focused on what it calls van-based reactive and planned services and that covers a wide range of things from plumbing to kitchen services to the recycling of fats, oils and grease, which sounds quite quite interesting. We've got around 650 franchisees in its markets across the UK, North America and Europe. And it's actually grown pretty quickly this year. It's doubled in size after picking up um, a company called Pertech back in April for £200 million, which I think we'll come to in a bit. Yeah, uh, I, I was obviously focusing on the brand side there, but you're right that the franchise is really the, the key part of this business. Uh, and that's also reflected in, uh, you know, the management team, the backers as well. I think, you know, there's some former dominoes, uh, bigwigs on board there, which, which does give it a certain cachet, perhaps. Yeah, so the, the two co-founders are former dominoes um, directors. So the executive chair is Stephen Hemsley, 
um, co-founded the business back in 2008. He's the former chief executive and chair of Domino's. And there's also Nigel Ray, who's the other co-founder, another former Domino's director. He's currently on the board of wine producer Chapel Down. I think, I think it's fair to say there is sort of respectable, um, respectable management team and backing um, at the company. And, and how, how operationally have they looked this year? You know, they have, uh, we'll come to that acquisition shortly, but in terms of the existing business, I think the, the plumbing side, the drainage side is a big part of it, the B2B brands. Uh, it also has a few uh, B2C brands too, but, but how, how have things been progressing this year? Yeah, very well. So the, the latest results cover the, the interims to the end of June. It's obviously impossible to ignore the acquisitions, but the existing business performed fairly well. So the B2B business sales were up from about £34 million last year to £42 million this year. And then B2C business, which is a bit smaller, um, revenues at about £3 million, um, down from £3.4 million last year. Um, the acquisitions have obviously had a huge impact. So you've got Pertech, um, which was picked up in April, and then Filter as well, which was bought last year, and that's a commercial kitchen and services business. And the two of those contributed about 37% of total revenue um, in the interim. So obviously a huge impact there. Um, I mean, more generally, looking at the results, so total revenues were up by around 57% to around £70 million, cash profits grew by 67%. So a fairly, a fairly solid set of results. Profits were down, um, but that was because of um, higher admin costs and intangibles, amortisation because of those acquisitions. Yeah, and these do give them a big international footprint as well, don't they? Uh, per tech, uh, Europe, Europe-focused continental Europe. It's a hydraulic hose replacement and associated services within a target one hour arrival time, apparently. So, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, pretty respectable. Uh, and, and Filter as well also has European operations and uh, American operations too. So they are starting to spread out quite far and wide, I think 10 countries now. Uh, the deal though, you know, the, the Pertech deal, pretty transformational in size, also required uh, fundraising earlier this year. Um, but clearly the group is gonna look quite different in future from what it has been. Yeah, absolutely. And, and management are very bullish about um, expansion. So Pertech um, management are saying they think it can expand to another eight European companies, uh, European countries. Sorry, and and Filsa management are very um, excited about the opportunity in in America. So yeah, it's the business has completely changed in in the last year, I'd say. Um, and, and just yeah, just to comment on the on the funding. So it actually had quite a big share price impact. Um, the company raised around 90 million pounds to part fund the Pertech deal back in April. But the issue was that was done at a quite a big discount to the share price. So the shares fell by around a quarter. Um, and I know Dan, you've mentioned before, and um, there's a potential dilution risk for investors to think about here, given that the companies um, sort of had several fundraising and share issues. Um, and I think that is something investors should be aware of and should consider but i don't think that's significant enough to stop us um going with our buy call on the shares yeah i mean obviously that fundraising get it done you know that that discount was in place but but nonetheless the fact there was appetite for it in in you know tricky markets is perhaps a, a vote of confidence 
Uh, I think as well, the, the B2C side we should touch on briefly too, because that was, you know, perhaps with one eye on, on these, you know, big acquisitions earlier this year, they, they tried to offload that, that business. It is much smaller now as a, a portion of the overall pie. Uh, you know, I think there's things like doggy daycare and things like that involved in there, but they haven't managed to do that. So they brought it back in house. So that that's still going to stay for now, but it seems clear that the, you know, the, the drainage, the hose side of things, the the B2B is much more where they want to focus on, where they want to focus their franchises in future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to remember the B2C division is very small. And in comparison, it's got about, I think it's only three franchise businesses um, as part of that. It's currently not up for sale. The company um, was looking for for a buyer earlier this year, but they couldn't get a a good enough offer. So took it off the market. but again, only around three million in revenue, so a very small part of the business now. Yeah, I mean, this is a company that uh, I think in the past a few months ago it came up in one of our uh, alpha screens as well. The uh, you know quality aim shares alpha screen, which, which does speak to some of its attributes. Nowadays, it probably wouldn't be in those screens because things like return on uh, investor capital would be going down a bit, given the uh, the equity that's been raised. But it's very much a case of uh, I think you know good future prospects. If this acquisition can can work as planned, and if they can get some some cross selling, I'm not not sure which of the uh, the franchises exactly will, will merge with one another, but there's definitely a lot of B to B to B in there, so there's some potential there as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably um, interesting to mention what analysts are saying. So, as I mentioned in the piece, analysts seem pretty bullish about prospects over the next couple of years. So they're saying, when I mean, the consensus says revenue expected to grow by over 60% this year and then 16% in 2024. Cash profits are expected to, to grow pretty quickly as well. And as I mentioned, the piece, the valuation is pretty attractive at around 15 times forward earnings, which is why we went for the, the buy tip. Yeah, the, there's that you know potential, isn't there, with uh, franchise businesses of, of that kind of operational leverage almost you know coming in there. So there is potential there too. Let's move on, though, because we, we've got a couple more companies to cover. We'll start with one where, you know, expectations have been slightly confounded this year, Gemma. That's FRP Advisory, because at the start of the year, people were thinking in, in tandem with some of the gloomy predictions about the UK economy that the insolvency specialists might have a, a you know great time of it, really. That hasn't happened, which is good news for everyone else, but not such good news for FRP. Uh, can we say a bit more about what has actually played out and, and where things have differed from the consensus. Yeah, I think you're right. People, when the pandemic first started, were looking at FRP with this ghoulish excitement, I suppose, thinking, you know, if if all other businesses are struggling, this one should thrive because obviously the bread and butter of its work are insolvency cases. So I think expectations were very high. Um, and it's not that the company's really been struggling or that growth has deteriorated in any major way, but it hasn't delivered the profit upgrades and stellar growth that a lot of people were hoping for, I think. Um, so revenue and profit growth has been at that sort of mid-single digit level. Um, and expectations for future years are also a little bit lacklustre. So I think that's where a lot of the disappointments come from. And shares are down by about a quarter since the start of the year, which which reflects that, I think. Yeah, as you say, I suppose this is a recurring theme because, as you mentioned, the pandemic, you know, inevitably people thought, well, that's going to lead to a lot of business trouble as well. Uh, which didn't happen partly because of the the support in place there at a you know national level, I suppose. The other issue, if you want to call it that, has been perhaps the the difference, the split between administrations and insolvencies that we've seen in recent years. 
Yeah, so on your first point, the the business did flag sort of quite frankly, I suppose, saying that companies had been much more resilient than they were expecting. External challenges hadn't proved as disastrous as they thought it would. So that had sort of suppressed business. But that point about the different types of insolvencies is crucial. So a lot of its money comes from administrations. Those tend to be about twice as profitable for restructuring specialists. Um, But a lot of the insolvency figures that we see in the headlines are relating to liquidations, which are far less lucrative. Um, but I think we're starting to see a tick up in the in the number of administrations. So we had some new insolvency figures out um, a few days ago relating to September, and there were 125 administrations, which was 47% higher than in September 2022. So we are starting to see this slightly worrying rise in in company collapses, I suppose, which is on the plus side, good news for FRP. Yeah, you, you've kindly not uh, uh, pointed out that I did uh, contrast administrations with uh, insolvencies there when it should be in administrations and liquidations. But that is an important point. Yes. Uh, following on from that, then, given the share price weakness we've seen and given this potential uptick, there is a, a recession still potentially on the cards. Is, is this a, a good you know, opportunity? Is the valuation case now more compelling than it was after this disappointment? I think it could be, yes. So its valuation is really much lower than it has been in the past. So its forward price to earnings ratio is about 13.5 compared to a five-year average of 24. So you can see that the market's really soured on it. Um, But various analysts I've spoken to have said this really lowly rating seems completely incompatible with the economic situation and this hostile corporate environment. So there could be opportunity there, I think. But a lot of the analysts in their forecasts were quite uncertain, I think, because it's so hard to predict the direction of the insolvency market. So one was saying, you know, we might see earnings upgrades towards the latter half of 2024. But then again, it's very hard to know, given the the volatility at the moment. Begbies, of course, is another name in this space, uh, slightly smaller. Uh, how do the two compare on, on that side of things or, you know, operationally as well? Yeah, so in many ways, they're very similar. So FRP's market cap's about 286 million and Begbie's is 173 million. So it is, you know, markedly smaller. And I think the issue with Begbie's at the moment is that it has a decent amount of exposure to property. So in the last few months, it's made a couple of acquisitions um, in the property services space in an attempt to to make it a more well-rounded company that's not just focused on insolvency and could sort of prosper throughout the different economic conditions. But I think investors seem to be nervous about that, given they're making these acquisitions at quite a, a gloomy gloomy point. Um, so that seems to have been weighing on Begbie's valuation in a way that hasn't completely affected FRP. FRP has made its own acquisition, we should say, in recent months as well, uh, small business, uh, Wilson Field, but perhaps that points to uh, its own thinking in in different ways because uh, I think it's a Sheffield-based business, but they seem to suggest that its work is slightly less lumpy than the the group as a whole. So that can kind of, you know, give it some ballast for the times, you know, the good times when times are less good for the likes of FRP. But but yes, that's not on the same level as Begbie's. The final question, I suppose, with FRP is really looking at the, the balance of the business. Do we expect in future, you know, the management to have learned from what we've seen in recent years and, and from this acquisition perhaps to to try and 
give them some more stability in moments when life is okay for the economy in general or are they always going to be a relatively cyclical business? I think both FRP and Begbies are trying to balance their businesses a bit more, I suppose, so have something for, for when times are good. Um, one thing I would flag with both of the companies is that they do have these acquisition strategies where they're buying small regional businesses, um, which has been working well. But it does mean with their numbers, there are some quite big adjustments going on. So their reported figures and their adjusted figures are often wildly dissimilar. And one analyst suggested to me that actually this was another thing that was weighing on Begbie's share price, that people were getting a little bit edgy about that discrepancy. So that's just a just a thing to look out for if you are interested in this sector. There are these slightly unnerving discrepancies in the numbers. Mm. Well, I don't know if we should uh, uh, hope for good times ahead for these businesses, but uh, it's certainly a, a sector of interest at the moment uh, once again. So we'll keep a close eye on them. We just got time to touch on a very different kind of company, uh, antibody provider Bioventix, which I believe is number 100 in the AIM 100 to just creeping in. Uh, we won't go into too much detail about the company. It does have numbers coming out uh, in a few days' time as well, I think. But, but there are some... On one level, Mark, there are some uh, interesting things that it does, but but also it's perhaps the kind of business that that in theory can do well on AIM and the kind of business that that has you know interesting attributes for investors. Well, I think it's the kind of business that AIM was created for uh, in the first place. Uh, I have very little idea about the clinical aspects it's involved in. You know, it produces antibodies which are used for diagnostic applications. But it's a heavily regulated area uh, of the, the biotech market there. And when you've got a company coming on board like that, that's obviously got compliance and regulatory issues on a day-to-day -day basis, the last thing it probably needs is uh, sort of enhanced listing requirements you'd get with the main board listing. So he hence the, the attractions of uh, uh, London's uh, junior market. Uh, in terms of Bioventix itself, I, I make the point in the piece as well that it has, uh, because of that, uh, those regulatory uh, constraints, it has an inbuilt advantage in terms of, uh, it's not exactly a moat as such, but it, it wards off other competitors in the market. And will all, over time as well, it generally leads to uh, greater interest from an M&A perspective. So as I say, this is a, a really interesting example, I think, of why AIM came into being and worth looking at as well, because as you say, it's just crept into that list. Yes. Uh, as you write as well, you know, there is a blue sky element to all these kind of uh, companies, you know, very early stage. I think biotech, biotech companies in the AIM space were pretty much exactly the same like the North Sea oil and gas explorers mm. you know offer it come oftentimes it just comes down to a, a a binary bet at least in in certain instances as well and we saw a clear out of those kind of companies at the end of the global financial crisis and so i think what you've got left in aim now of course you know the numbers are well down on their 2007 peak but i genuinely believe that what you've got left now is a higher quality overall throughout the index yeah and in terms of what bioventix does as well you know it is who knows if it'll actually work but it is undoubtedly an area of uh, potential wide application because it's looking at, at uh, you know diagnostics in relation to alzheimer's which is clearly an area where there's a lot of yeah. development and research going into at the moment yeah there's extraordinary potential there as well so 
uh, you know, you, you could understand uh, why we'd end up on someone's uh, portfolio from the, the speculative angle. Uh, certainly the company itself has got some uh, promising, uh, well, they're not exactly therapies in the, in the conventional sense, but certainly in terms of those, uh, uh, its input to their diagnostic uh, applications. Well worth a second look, I think, if you wanted to look at uh, a company that has blue sky characteristics. Yeah, uh, as I say, those figures, oh, there is an update due out in the next few days, a couple of weeks. So uh, best to take a look at that as well, I think, uh, before diving in. We have, however, come to the end of the show. So thank you very much to Mark, to Julian, to Chris, to Gemma, and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe, who I accidentally aged by three decades last week by describing her as Gen X rather than Gen Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Companies and Markets Show.